You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Well, hey, it's Craig Fuhr coming again from Real Investor Radio. Welcome, welcome. This is episode 22. Jack, how are you today? Doing wonderful. Doing wonderful. How are you, sir? Doing well. As always, joined by Jack Bevere from an undisclosed uh, bunker. Where are you, Jack? Where are you I'm, today? I'm in Baltimore. I'm in Baltimore today. Well, it's good to be home. So, man, we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, got a whole bunch of articles that I'd like to go through. And I know you uh, just had a great meeting of a bunch of um, top investors from around the country. We'll touch on that. Um, for those of you who didn't catch our last couple of episodes, we uh, spoke with... Uh, an analyst by the name of Melody Wright. Melody was fantastic. She's um, uh, been in the industry for quite a while uh, in the mortgage industry, um, mortgage tech, and uh, had some really uh, cool takes on where she thought the market was going in terms of uh, housing uh, demand. Uh, we had a really lively discussion with her, and, and you know some of which I think we agreed with Jack, and uh, and some of which we did not. And uh, I just wonder if you might want to touch on that for a little bit. You know, guide folks back to those two episodes, which were, I think were really fantastic. People had, yeah, had a chance to listen to them. Melody's super smart, very well read on housing economics, and she's got some she's got some really contrarian views that are based off of her firsthand knowledge and research of having physically visited. Um, a lot of job sites, home building job sites specifically mm -hmm. across the country. Um, and her view that, that there's a dirty secret basically in home building mm -hmm. and that the home building industry has really overbuilt the wrong kind of housing for the country. It's not affordable and it's sitting there. And she likens it to the kind of overbuilding that happened that led up to the great recession. And it's her view that uh, that we are going to enter a housing crisis that is on the same scale, if not worse, in her words, than than what we experienced 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, she gave me a ton to think about, and and frankly, you know, we, we were we were pressing her a little bit on on different aspects of of her thesis there, uh, and but she, you know, but frankly, she's she's very well thought out on it. Uh, and it gave me gave me a lot to think about. I spent a bunch of time in the past couple of weeks since then, really trying to like vet that thesis, vet her thesis, and and you know wonder you know maybe she sees something that none of us see, and we'd be wise to take heed. <coughs> I can't quite get there. I'm still not uh, nearly as pessimistic as she is about. I do agree with some of her fundamental ideas that we've overbuilt a lot of the wrong inventory and it's not affordable and certain projects are going to languish for a number of years because they're just not what the market wants right now. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's, but frankly, I just don't think it's on the same scale as what she does. And I, and I don't mm -hmm. see it as a harbinger of doom in the housing economy the same way that she does. You know, it's funny. I, I, um, I don't want people to, when they listen to the show, to think that, that you know we have this sort of dour look about everything in terms of the market. In fact, I, I really think there's tremendous opportunity that's coming. But um, it feels like, you know, on any given episode, if no matter who we have on, they're going to have an opinion. 
it's generally based in fact, but it's amazing to me, Jack, how varied the the opinion is amongst analysts. And you know, I, I can't say that I'm surprised. I, I think that's always been the case. If you get two analysts or two 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 economists in a room, you're always going to get two different opinions. Um, but you know, I, I I wanted to go through today in some depth on this episode, this really great report that you had sent me uh, from Wolf Research. Uh, Wolf Research is a um, is a company of analysts. Essentially, they have over 25 analysts and they cover uh, 600 plus companies in the home building space and, and, and in different industries. In fact, 81 different industries um, across the spectrum. And so I had this very extensive report that you sent me, Jack, and I thought we would just go sort of bullet point by bullet point where they basically uh, sat down and they, 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 they had a bull, a bull thesis of the market and a bunch of bullet points supporting that. And then as uh, you know, and then a contrarian uh, bear thesis. And I thought it would be interesting to go through that for the listeners. So we can jump into that if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an excellent compilation. Um, it was uh, Wolf Research is not something I was previously um, aware of. Uh, 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 one of my best friends who actually got married this past weekend, shout out to Jason Minzer of Timberlake Homes, forwarded <laughs> me some, Jason forwarded me uh, a Wolf Research piece that he thought I would find interesting. And um, I went went to their website. They've got a ton of free content uh, that is really high quality. And this particular piece, um, I, I, you know, for me, it was the best compilation of both that the, of frankly the talking points for the optimists as well as the talking points for the pessimists and if you read and, and really like in this one article i found pretty much most of the talking points that i had that i've seen in in the media that's published on the housing research side of things um so yeah let's uh let's let's dig into some of the the nitty-gritty here because i think it's super high quality content yeah, I would uh, direct folks to uh, Real Investor Radio forward slash notes. Um, I believe that's correct. Rachel will put the uh, put that um, link somewhere in the description, I'm sure. But uh, let's just jump in here. So uh, the the uh, article is entitled "Home Builder Bull versus Bear Debate Talking Points," and uh, the bull thesis here is essentially that the long term underpinnings of the housing of housing are healthy. And uh, somewhat surprising, they say that uh, year-to-date 23 demand uh, is uh, will rebound, and pricing improvement will support this thesis. So, uh, bullet point number one, Jack: the new residential has already gone through its recession. They say over the past two years, new home sales have declined uh, by 22 percent to 640k. Uh, in in both 22 and the trailing 12 months ending 20 in May of 23. By the way, this report was uh, it's a little dated. It was done in Je- July of uh, 23. Shelter Jack comprises 40% of core CPI. Given the rent home price moderation in the second half of 22, which leads core CPI, the odds of a soft landing or light recession have increased and indicate housing has already bottomed out. Uh, there, you know, affordability is obviously stretched right now. Builders have met the market with price cuts, including mortgage buy downs, which has been a, a tactic of theirs to uh, keep demand high. 
And they're saying, assuming a portion of incentives are used to buy down mortgage rates by 100 bips, builders have already reduced a monthly payment by 10% versus the peak of the second quarter of 22, uh, which helps alleviate the affordability crunch. Builders, their ability to buy down rates is a meaningful competitive advantage versus resale, and new residential offers a better value proposition than resale in a, a historical context. So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, like bear in mind that this, there, there's, I think there's a perspective. Um, Peter Linneman, who's a uh, housing professor at the University of Pennsylvania, reminds us, I follow his work, and he reminds us on a regular basis that this is all COVID hangover, that we freaked out because we didn't know what COVID was going to do. And we freaked out and we printed a ton of money because we didn't want people to get hurt economically in the midst of a health crisis. And we printed, and in retrospect, we printed too much, but at the time we didn't know, you know, we didn't know how long this this health crisis was going to last. So we overshot it and now we're correcting back and that's caused some distortions in the financial markets, but this is all just COVID hangover. And in 2019, we had a healthy housing market. And then things became, we, we, we printed too much money. If you happen to engage in the market in 2020 and 2021, you got the best of that trade because you borrowed a bunch of really cheap money. And now we're swinging back the other direction and prices and, and the price of money has gone too high. But that's it's but but like a pendulum, it's going to swing too high and then it's going to come balance back into the middle. And we're going to then, you know, get on with our lives and go back to a productive economy. And there's no real, there was no reason. This is just, this is just the swings back and forth as a result of, you know, the, the financial engineering that we tried to do to help, help make things less painful during that period of time, but everything's fine. And, you know, and once we, if everyone would just, you know, get back to work and, and let a little bit of time pass, this will just work itself through the system and we'll go right back into a very healthy economy and a strong housing market. And I, I, I get that. That makes a ton of sense to me. Like there is a sense that, um, there's, a, a sort of that shock that happens when, uh, interest rates, you know, essentially double yet the American consumer is amazingly resilient, kind of has a short memory and we kind of reach an equilibrium point where the consumer ultimately says, oh yeah, these rates are here to stay. Um, I've got to get on with my life. You know, I'm going to bite the bullet and go buy a home at, you know, whatever the prevailing rate is. Um, one of the, the next bullet point, which I thought was, was interesting, Jack, is that the demo, the demographics remain supportive. This is part of their bull thesis again, as, as millennials, which are the largest generation in history, continue to enter their prime home buying years. It's clashing with the current inventory shortage and significant underbuilding that has occurred since the great recession. Stronger demographics with a structural shortage of homes is a healthy setup. And over the next five years, there will be 1.1 more millennials entering their prime home buying years than the prior five years. Now, I think there's probably 
some changing consumer sentiment there as well, Jack. Not all of these millennials are, you know, big on home buying. Many of them, there's a, there's a sentiment amongst them. If you take a, a you know, I saw a recent survey of college uh, students. I don't think those are necessarily millennials in all cases. However, 40% of them said, you know, I think I'm, I think I'd rather rent than, than buy a home. So there is that sort of changing consumer sentiment, but, um, uh, what do you think of that in, in terms? I, I had no idea, by the way, that the millennials are the largest, uh, you know, uh, demographic in history. I, I actually thought that would be the baby boomers, but evidently there's more millennials. Yeah. Yeah. All their kids, I guess. The, um, <laughs> Melody brings up, you know, Melody Wright as the, as the bear, and I'll, and I'll bring up the distinction here. So mm. she would argue the demographics are working. She would argue the opposite of this. I think she would. Um, and she would point out that we've got all these older folks, all the baby boomers moving to Florida, for example, right? Like to paint with a very broad brush, like moving to the South from the Northeast and sure. but those people aren't going to live forever and they're not going to be able to live by themselves forever and what are we going to do with all these million dollar houses you know 4000 square foot million dollar houses in Florida when these folks pass away no one's going to want them and she mm -hmm. she points to that as a a problem from a demographic point of view so i think this bull thesis points out the 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 broader market um you know, and, and I think that if when we're talking about the median house in the country, this bull thesis speaks more to that piece, which isn't to say that there aren't pockets where the demographics aren't are, are going to factor in negatively for the housing market. Um, so, you know, I, I feel, you know, lies, damn lies and statistics. You can you can twist the tw twist the math any way you want to you want to in order to make the point that you're trying to make. And in this case, I feel um, you can either zoom in or zoom out to make your, to, you know, to make the argument that you want to make as well. And so, uh, when, when, you know, we're talking about bulls versus bears, it's difficult because you have to start with, are we talking about a particular market or the, the overall market? Are we, you know, are we, are we zoom, you know, where are we zooming? What level of zoom are we using to, to start the conversation? Otherwise you, people just talk past each other and yeah. one person's a bear and the other one thinks the other one's an idiot. Not, neither of them are idiots, right? They're just using two different levels of Zoom when they're when they're starting their conversation. I love the demographics. The, one's an interesting illustration of that. It, it, it's you know, it definitely speaks to a macro point. Um, you know, the shifting demographics of the country, um, and the point that you've made before in uh, consumption. You know, we've we've all grown very accustomed to our much larger houses. Um, that have been built over the last 20 years. And, uh, and I think what, what we're seeing in terms of the younger generation is that many of them don't necessarily look at that, you know, 3,500 square foot house and say, oh, that's something that I aspire to. Um, you know, in fact, uh, you know, a lot of them have said, and a lot of them are renting much smaller spaces. And so, uh, you know, I think, I think, um, to keep an eye on that moving forward, uh, especially in terms of what builders are building, uh, would be a, a really interesting thing to sort of put a pin in and, and watch over the next few years. 
I was on, I mentioned this in the last episode with, um, with Melody, I was on the Zellman, Ivy Zellman, their research is excellent. And yep. I was, they did a, a, an online conference, you know, set of panels over the course of three days for home builders, um, or primarily home builders. And it, they were very, everyone was very overt. Ivy was very overt. The home builders were very overt that the new starts, the size of the new starts is coming down. Because as Melody points out, these 4,000 square foot, $800,000 million houses don't have demand right now. But if you put a new, but if you put new construction on the market at, at $399,900, it flies off the shelf. Yeah. Um, and so the home builders are pivoting towards that. Uh, it's the reason that build to rent is still um, a thing. And, um, and so, yeah, I, th I think that that's already started I, I, and, and I think that that's going to continue because of, uh, yeah, the affordability, the affordability issues. All right. Next bullet point, uh, supply and demand issue here. So the housing shortage, uh, the U S is structurally undersupplied by 1.5 to 2 million units per Wolf's proprietary calculation. Existing inventory is further constrained by rate lock as existing homeowners are not compelled to surrender their 3.5% mortgages to move to a 6.5 plus percent mortgage. And this continues pushing consumers to new residential as home builders have available inventory and, and a relief valve for the shortage. Um, with the U.S. adding 1.7 million jobs in the first half of 23, uh, wage inflation is healthy. There has been less turmoil on Main Street that will lead to distressed or missed monthly payments for exist existing homeowners and an interrelated uptick in existing for sale inventory. Until something changes, tight existing for sale inventory and job growth are supportive of the new residential market gains. So, essentially what they're saying is it, you know blue skies for builders yeah i think the to, to take the to I, i'm sure i'm jumping ahead and the bears are gonna bring up this point but it's until something changes i think is like the operative issue there and again yeah. now we've zoomed now we've zoomed into like everything's fine right now the consumer is really still very strong like this is just a you know the interest rates will set steady out and as long as no one loses their jobs that being like the the big missing piece there like if you know the the x factor in this conversation being are we going into a recession or not how severe is that recession going to be and that your view on that i think is you know fundamentally connected to your pessimism or optimism for for the you know for what to do in the housing market yeah what are your feelings there i mean in terms of uh, a, a pending recession in 24 so I think I think I made this art, uh, comment on a previous episode. Otherwise, it was at the um, the mastermind this past weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, Fred and I, uh, my partner Fred, went down to uh, Miami to the ABS East conference. It's asset backed securities. It's basically fifteen hundred white dudes in blue suits. It's uh, super interesting. <laughs> it's Wall Street conference, and they're all. It's all about securitizations, bond buying, um, and they had a couple economists in the keynote uh, panel. And the what surprised me was that these economists had the same view of mm. what was going to happen. Like I'm used to, like you said, you know, you put three, con you know, two economists up on a stage and you're going to have, you know, polar opposite views potentially. 
But um, their view was that <clears throat> their view of the next 18 months was that we saw price increases, sorry, businesses saw cost increases in the wake of COVID or in COVID and in, in the wake of COVID because of the distortions of printing too much money and people not wanting to come back to work. And uh, so businesses experienced cost increases, but then they were able to pass those cost increases through to consumers and consumers paid. So we've all paid higher prices. That's called inflation. This time though, a year, fast forward a year, the consumer is much weaker. We're still experiencing cost increases. Um, some of the supply chain disruptions have, have, have worked out, but labor is still strong from a relative point of, you know, from a, a relative leverage point of view. And so businesses and, and, and not everyone's, you know, dying to go back, you know, dying, being back to work uh, and, and back to work. So we're still experiencing cost increases, but this time over the course of the next six to 12 months, the consumer is not going to pay it. Businesses are going to try to pass through those continued cost increases. The consumer is not going to be able to pay it this time because their savings accounts are empty and their credit cards are getting to their maxes. And that's going to result in just lower revenues, those lower revenues and therefore lower profits. So this next phase is that profit margins get squeezed at businesses. And once mm -hmm. profit margins start to become squeezed at businesses, they start looking with a little bit more of a raised eyebrow at all of their inputs, you know, like cost of labor, and they start laying people off on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be the, 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 the trend on mass over the course of the next 12 months is that businesses will just be slowly shedding more labor and weakening and weakening and weakening the labor market, which will then also result in less uh, consumer spending, which further w weakens businesses and causes it to happen even more. And we'll we just slowly cycle down into a shallow recession uh, in the third quarter of next year was, you know, if you tried to pin them down, that's roughly where they were thinking about this entering a recession. And then we'll be in a shallow recession for a protracted period of time, not a 90 day COVID recession, a year of of shallow recession and then we'll slowly climb back out of it as everyone gets their ass back to work and starts you know starts working again and um is more productive and um that was kind of a that was kind of a consensus view on the stage and i thought it was a very interesting take uh i'm having a hard time poking holes in it frankly i think it's a very plausible path forward uh so I don't think it's going to be a super hard. There's there's no crisis. Their point was like, and another point they made was there's no crisis. Like we're not going to have a deep recession because nothing horrible. Well, save for war, right? Like war being I was another. Say, X there factor. had to be there had to be one X factor that they threw in there, and I, I would think that would be a big one. Yeah, yeah. So war, notwithstanding, will have a soft recession because and, you know, and just a, a shallow, long, you know, kind of depressing, you know, next 12 to 18 months. So that kind of view is like, Hey, get used to interest rates for, for high, being higher for a little while. But then as the, as the, as the recession happens, the fed decreases, you know, may, you know, will decrease rates some, but 
it won't make a difference because you don't have a job to pay for this stuff. So yeah, mortgage rates came down, but you lost your job. So you're not buying houses anyway, or you're like, Hey, it's the middle of a recession. It's a crappy time to buy, to buy a house right now. So once you can afford it from an interest rate point of view, you won't have a job <laughs> to qualify for the mortgage. And so that will keep us in a kind of depressed, um, you know, a shallow depressed, uh, you know, economy. I don't like How's to get happen? into shallow anecdotal evidence, but um, I, you know, I speak to a lot of people and friends of mine who are in sales. They're keeping their jobs right now, but their but their commissions are getting jacked with. You know, they're just you know they're they're essentially being decreased significantly, and I think that's a way for a lot of companies to decrease mm. labor costs without actually doing the round of layoffs that I feel like they're trying to avoid. Um, you know, especially if they've spent so much money on uh, in, invested in these uh, better employees. But uh, yeah, I've spoken to three people over the last three weeks, my wife being one of them, whose commission got significantly uh, tweaked. And so uh, I think, and we've heard of, uh, you know, layoffs in certain sectors already. So um, I think, you know, we could see some layoffs coming. Yeah. I mean, housing and housing and mortgages, you know, definitely one of those where there's a lot fewer loan officers today than there were, but still, when you look at origination volumes versus the body count of, of who's still in the business, we're, there's a ton of extra, um, loan officers still in the market. And if things don't turn around in a year, um, you know, that, that, that's got to continue to shake out real estate agents. I mean, Transaction volumes are still even lower, which is just crazy that we've been saying that for like three years in a row now. Um, yeah. But real estate agents are really feeling the pressure right now, and you know, eventually, you know, eventually they've got to capitulate and get a day job. So PNC just went through a uh, pretty massive round of layoffs. They didn't disclose exactly how many, but um, analysts have said it was it was sizable. There's been layoffs already in tech, um, you know, with only about seven companies uh, really guiding the the explosion in tech. Um, so yeah, there's, I think there could be more of that coming. Uh, anyway, back to the bull back. I thought we were talking about the bull side of things. We are, we are. <laughs> All right. So, uh, next bullet point, And, and this, again, we're, we're speaking really, um, from a home builder standpoint in terms of the overall market. Uh, uh, the, the current mortgage rate today, again, back, this is written in uh, July of uh, 6.8%. I think we're around, I took a look today, we're around 7.7 FHA jack right now. It, so the current mortgage rate uh, sits around three to 400 basis points above rates that legacy homeowners are currently holding, which I mentioned previously. This is the highest spread since uh, the 1980s. And so during the 80s, new home, the, the new home market share increased from 14 to 17% over that two-year period. And what we've seen over the last uh, year or so, Jack, is that market share for new home builders is still rising um, above historic levels. Um, they're saying that that trend is set to continue based on the, you know, sort of the spread between uh, mortgage rates right now uh, for legacy homeowners and new home buyers. Um, so they're they're saying again, you know, throw in that potential uh, right there, and and that really speaks to a, a softer landing, um, you know, in, in the market. 
So I, I think we've spoken to that, but um, let's move on to the next bullet point here, Jack. So again, speaking of mortgages, the spread between the 30-year mortgage rates and the 10-year treasury rates is now around 300 bips. And historically, that spread is about 170 bips, which suggests that, suggests that mortgage rates should compress over the next 12 months once the mortgage market becomes comfortable with the Fed's uh, QT. Um, and assuming that the 30-year mortgage uh, rate versus the 10-year Treasury spread normalizes, they're saying that an incremental 5.5 million households would be able to then afford the median price house. Affordability is obviously the big factor here, Jack, with uh, many markets in the country, you know, being the least affordable in history. You know, I, I read it the other day that um, uh, Americans are generally spending somewhere between 36 and 40 percent of their of their income on housing right now. Um, so speak to that. I struggle a little bit with this one. Uh, sorry not to be the perennial bear here, but the again, it's based off of the thesis that like, hey, this is going to work itself out, and that the um, and that the natural spread, the natural credit spread for mortgages is 120 basis points lower than where, where it's currently priced. 100, 120 basis points lower than where it's currently priced. The difference is that those numbers, that baseline, quote unquote baseline, was the past 15 years when the Fed was an active buyer of mortgage-backed securities, the government mm -hmm. was subsidizing our purchasing of, of houses. Uh, and the Fed has now you know, reversed course and is letting those mortgage-backed securities trail off their balance sheet. They're not buying mortgage-backed securities like they were before. And so it's left to just the private market to set what the appropriate credit spread is. And the private market has said, well, we need an extra 100, 120 basis points. Um, otherwise, we're not interested. Combine that with you have less foreign money purchasing American securities for a lot of mm -hmm. geopolitical reasons. And I'm not sure that I like truly understand the thesis that this spread is going to come back down. Yes, it is elevated, but maybe it's appropriate. Like maybe it's appropriately elevated and maybe it's going to just stay there. And this is just the new credit spread. And yeah. um, I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced that there's this natural level that's a hundred basis points lower. Yeah. You know, the funny thing that uh, Wolf states here is, that, you know, in, in their research, they say that clearly higher mortgage rates negatively affect demand. We've seen that rates started spiking in uh, January of 21. Historically, rates are disrupt disruptive for roughly a year. And after that, home buyers adapt to the prevailing rate environment and move forward with their lives. Said another way, one year following, one year following rate spikes, housing goes the way of the economy, good or bad. And coupling this with a shortage of homes, demographics, and a strong year-to-date employment growth, this dynamic will keep the market relatively high through 2023 plus, as housing appears less cyclical than past cycles. I think I that's the bull thesis. Yeah, that's that the bull is thesis. Definitely full. Uh, next point is given consumer strong balance sheets, just talking about uh, the health of the consumer and the unhealthy and healthy employment picture, uh, the Fed will be able to engineer the soft landing 
which will allow housing demand to stabilize. Now, speaking of the of uh, the strength of the consumer at this point, uh, read a couple days ago that uh, credit card debt has surpassed uh, one trillion dollars. Uh, it's uh, much higher than it was during COVID when people were saving more. Um, there's no shortage of people taking out HELOCs, uh, and we're seeing some defaults. So are the consumers nearly as strong as, as Wolf might suggest here, Jack? Well, they used to be, right? They, they, they used to be. But, uh, but today, you know, this was written back in July. I think back in July, people were saying the consumer could, just continues to, you know, continues to exceed expectations and, uh, and you know, and everything's going to be fine. But I, I think that we've, for the past four months, started to see more and more cracks in the consumer. and. Um, so I'm not a full yeah. bull on this uh, for that reason. All right. So let's get into the bear thesis. And I think we've already hit on some of these points. Um, yeah. Skipped ahead. There are, yeah, first, first point is that housing overall is not healthy. Uh, existing home sales are roughly, usually historically, 85 to 90% of all home transactions. That is down 25% year over year. Uh, at 4.3 million houses. In, this is in, in line with levels during the 08 to 11 housing bust, the worst housing recession since the Great Depression, and combining this with stretched affordability and a potential economic recession, the housing market is still quite fragile. And although new home sales have stabilized, the industry is benefiting from an unsustainable pent-up second half of 22 demand. So they're essentially saying that all of that COVID demand, you know, has uh, was brought forward, and now we're seeing the the you know it's it's subsided, and uh, that that will not continue. The bull's argument that the U.S. is structurally short housing inventory conveniently ignores two key items: the affordability issue in the United States and household formation that was pulled forward during COVID. Yeah. Jump in here anywhere. Keep going. <laughs> All right. So the uh, second bullet point here, which I uh, put an asterisk next, is that the undersupplied argument entirely overlooks the affordability side of the equation, which is stretched following a 2.5 year period between 2020 and 2022, where we saw 40 to 45% home price appreciation. If you couple this with the 300, three to 400-bit rise in mortgage rates since 21, the U.S. has just experienced the largest affordability shock in history as the median monthly mortgage payment has increased 100% since the beginning of 2020. This affordability issue will cap home pricing in the next couple of years and continue squeezing home buyers out of the market, particularly if paired with a recession. Yep. I think that um, that piece and the prior comments ignore that they assume the consumption stays the same. And I just don't think that's the way that people act. I think that when affordability is stretched, you delay and you have roommates for longer so that, uh, so that you, know, you, you consume less housing per capita in order to make up for that. And so 
again, I think it's like, you know, what, what time frame are we zooming in on here? You know, are we talking about, you know, the bull versus bear thesis is that, are you talking, you know, some of those are 10 year comments. Some of those are three year comments. Some of those are 12 month comments. And I think a lot of the bear thesis comments are zoomed in on that disruptions that are happening, the COVID, you know, the delay in the, the, the COVID pull forward of demand. And so this is, we're in the wake of that right now. And so things are weak right now. Uh, yes, absolutely. And in, and uh, over the course of a 12 month period, if you're, if that's what you're really focused on and making a decision as to like, what are housing prices going to do over a 12 month period? I mm-hmm. think that those are absolutely salient and like the right, um, the right factors to be taking into consideration. If you're buying housing for the long term, though, they're pointing out 12 month distortions, but those are only 12 month distortions. The other, I think the bull thesis is more convincing if you zoom out to a 10 year investment horizon. I think sure. the bears are a little bit more convincing if you're zoomed in on a 12 month um, investment horizon. So, yeah. kind of. Um, so I, I think that, yes, we're absolutely going to see some distortions in behavior and we have seen those distortions in behavior. And as a result, we've seen really low transaction volumes. Another thing to consider, I guess, uh, is that when you're talking about a bear, are you talking about, do you care about the nominal, like, do, how, what do we call bear? that the market is slower, the transaction volumes are lower. If you're a real mm-hmm. estate agent, that's what they care about. If you're a mortgage broker, that's what they care about is volumes. They don't really care about the absolute level of prices, just that people are transacting. So a right. bear market to a real estate agent is a slow, is a low transaction volume market. A bear market to a real to a flipper is a short-term pricing drop, right? A t- within a 12-month period, prices drop 10, 15%. The flipper cares about that. Yep. If you're talking to a land, you know, and so that's a, a bear market. If you're talking to a landlord, uh, a bear market is one where there's, where interest rates are too high or rents go down a little bit and they're not able to make their, they're not able to make any, make as much money or any money off of their rental property, or they've got high levels of vacancy because we're in a recession and people aren't making their rent payments. So you're having to go through an eviction. That's a bear market to a landlord. Um, so I think you have to kind of, you know, pick your perspective when we are choosing to talk about a bull or a bear market uh, thesis. So all of these points are all of these points are valid. It's just from different perspectives and from different time frames, and, and with different time frames in mind. Um, yeah, I agree, um, and I think you've always had a very healthy long term outlook on the market and America and, and American real estate in general. That's always been the Jack Bevere outlook. Yeah. 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 The, though, though we have, you know, we do a lot of investing on those shorter timeframes as well. Um, something that was really interesting from, um, from real investor Roundtable. this, uh, we run this nonprofit mastermind three times a year. We get together, we've been getting together in Baltimore, sometimes Dallas as well, but there's a lot of really high level. We run it as a nonprofit um, it's meant to just share ideas. There's lots of great masterminds out there that are run on both nonprofit and for-profit basis. We just happen to run ours as a nonprofit. It's really meant to be ideas sharing. And so we 
try to get very high level operators in the room. And we've uh, over the past five or six years done it, done a good job of that. And uh, folks from all over the country, right, Jack? Yeah. Folks from all over the country. Um, generally everyone in the room's doing at least 50 transactions a, a year. Uh, and there's some killers in the room as well who are mm -hmm. doing like, you know, several hundred, like, you know, three, three, four hundred, um, real estate deals themselves, like not buying a multifamily, not buying, you know, three hundred unit buildings, like no doing like 300 flips. Mm -hmm. Um, and a really interesting, and so they've, you know, they're, they're running bigger shops. They've got to decide how they're going to pivot over time. Uh, because if you become one thing and you do one thing, <clears throat> we've talked about this before, then you ride the cycle, you ride the wave of that business model going through, you know, going through the economy. So a better thing to do is be able to do multiple things. And when rentals get tough, flip more houses. When flipping gets tight, wholesale a bunch more. Um, when you're not seeing interesting cap rates and you've got some capital to deploy, start lending instead of, you know, pivot between the equity and debt. And, uh, so there's a lot of folks with those kind of balance sheets, uh, in the room who are, that's what they're interested in. You know, like what is the business model? What geography do I want to be in? What business model do I want to be in? And what part of the capital stack do I want to play in? And if you can pivot, if, if you were, you know, if you can create a platform that is um, not, no one's purely agnostic, but, but that has the ability to pivot between uh, each of those three things, then I think that you can set yourself up a real estate platform that endures and is, and excels through cycles. Um, so for example, for, for us in Baltimore, two years ago, we were, we, we were, we were still buying about a hundred houses a year. We're still buying about a hundred houses a year. But two years ago, I was adding 75 of those as rentals, flipping five and wholesaling the rest. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to today, I'm hardly adding a rental right now because the cost of capital is eight plus percent. And that's just not accretive. You know, I'm not buying 10 caps. Prices have not come down to the point where we're buying 10 caps and borrowing money at an eight makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we've really pivoted every or pivoted a lot of our pipeline over to over to flipping at the this this past weekend there are a number of uh build to rent operators in the room who are doing who are building several hundred houses a year um <clears throat> some of those folks they were selling turnkey rentals um be, to, when interest rates were lower sure. uh because the, that was a you know an attractive proposition for a passive real estate investor to be able to borrow money at 4% and invest in turnkey rental real estate. Uh, other folks were doing build to rent and selling to the large funds in, in packages of you know, 30, 50, 100. Um, and a lot of both of those categories have now shifted towards retail sale um, mm. because V value has not come down very much. Um, and the prospect of refinancing, um, whether for a turnkey rental investor, either an, a single person or an institution, their cost of capital is much higher. So that bid has gotten weaker. Um, the investor bid for rent for, for turnkey real estate, either as an individual property or a package, has gotten weaker. And so they've shifted and now they're selling, now they're doing, you know, 250 retail sales a year, you know, for $350,000 new construction houses in the Carolinas. Um, 
And so we've seen those folks pivot um, to accommodate what we were just talking about, that in the short term, you know, interest rates are, interest rates are high. A refinance exit is not a profitable exit right now. Um, it's hard to get all your cash out and keep moving things forward. And then yeah. the money that you have stuck into that refi is not going to have a very interesting return on equity. But you can, but there's still an exit to the homeowner, especially in the for, in the affordable segments. Um, yeah. And so we've seen a lot of pivoting in the in, over the course of the past two or three meetings. Uh, big pivots, you know, big big pivots over the course of the past eight months to accommodate this kind of new operating environment and get through yeah. that short term. Yeah, you know, we've spoken to that, Jack, and and I think that you know it takes a a really strong operator to make that pivot. You know, I think I think the average, you know, guy gal who's out there investing and is doing multiple deals per year but certainly not that 50 to 100 plus um they see, they feel um that they know that they have to make a shift in their business strategy um because of rates in the environment but they don't quite know how to do it. And one of the things I think that uh, is cool about what you guys do with uh, the real the real estate investor roundtable is that um, you speak to guys who are making those shifts, those massive shifts, and who are figuring it out. Um, one of the things that I think you've spoken to uh, on the past episodes was this: uh, this is a time to really tighten your operations and to maybe uh, get schooled up on some different strategies. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, a um, couple, uh, a couple uh, final points here on this really great report. Again, we're on this uh, Wolf Research report. Uh, I believe that's WolfResearch.com. The report was entitled "Home Builder Bull versus Bear Debate" and the talking points. Um, you know, just a couple final points here uh, that the 30-year mortgage rate versus the 10-year spread is is very elevated. We spoke about that. Um, last point that I thought was interesting, Jack, is there is the supply of multifamily units currently under construction, mm. which is the highest in the past 50 years. And it really dwarfs the past three peak levels of uh, 78, 86, and 2008. It says these multifamily units, generally rentals, will need to be leased up and rented upon completion. There is a concern, however, that the multifamily sector is becoming oversupplied and that potential rent concessions will pressure the for sale market as consumers elect to stay in rental units. Um, so certainly is there, there's a potential that this uh, uh, will occur. And they believe the decision to purchase is principally driven by lifestyle choices. So speak to that, Jack. We see a lot of multifamily construction around the United States uh, here in Maryland, uh, a lot of luxury being built um, that appears to be sort of empty right now. So what are you seeing there? Yeah, I think that the, the, the concern about multifamily is driven by mostly the fact that it's that, it's that luxury higher rent per square foot product. Mm -hmm. It encourages, it's targeted at the millennials, right? We were undersupplied in this 10 years ago. People, you know, we do what we do, right? We, we, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to make money building luxury. We build a ton of it and we probably overshoot it um, because momentum in, in real estate markets acts that way. And so that's a criticism. And I think a valid criticism as to, because it's competing, right? Shelter is shelter is shelter, you know, you know, and, and when we're talking about affordability, um, the you know the, the 
it is very uh, fungible, a multifamily building unit versus an entry-level home. From a pricing point of view, um, they're direct competitors with each other. And so depending on millennials' desires to, um, to start families, if they delay that, then they're going to stay renters for longer. And so... They are direct and they're, they're building a ton of multi nice, you know, they have continued to build a ton of nice multifamily. I think multifamily starts are really trending down significantly right now. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that is, but that's because there's a concern that there's going to be, that there's so much in the pipeline that there's going to be an overhang. And if there's an overhang, then it's a threat to rents. And it's not only a threat to multifamily rents, it's a threat to single family rents as well, because those are direct competitors and very fungible with each other. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a, it's a valid concern. Uh, and I think it, but it, I think it's a valid concern on a micro market basis. You know, people mm -hmm. are freaked out about that in, in Austin and in, um, other markets where there's just a tremendous amount of luxury multifamily building still in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. Um, and it'll absolutely be a factor. And it's a factor that is going to play itself out over the course of the next 18 months. And so people, it's, you know, it's tough to wait how much of a factor that's going to be. And depending on the preferences of that millennial potential home buyer, um, if they can get a great deal in a luxury building, maybe that does tamp down demand for new household formation in, in, in single family in single family detached. So yeah, right. it's a threat. I think it's a valid concern. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, if the price of, uh, renting becomes more affordable than owning, which it is in many markets right now, uh, and rents, you know, there, de there is definite downward pressure. I had another report here somewhere in my stack of the downward pressure on rents right now. Um, I think you could see people opting for rent much more than, than, than home buying, especially if you can go into, you know, brand new building, lovely, you know, it's affordable, more affordable. Um, so yeah, um, I c I would love to, uh, get some thoughts from folks. If you want to comment on this particular report, I just thought it was fascinating. Um, thanks for sharing it, Jack. It's a great report. I can't wait to see more of their stuff from Wolf research, maybe have some of these guys on the show. Uh, talk about their thoughts. But um, yeah, I would love to hear folks uh, comments on um, sort of what we talked about in terms of supply and demand, affordability, um, you know, where the market's heading. Uh, we'd love to get your thoughts on it. So go ahead and comment. Uh, we'd love to love to hear you. Um, we'll wrap it up there, Jack. Uh, start up another one in a few minutes here. Guys, thanks for tuning in uh, to episode 22 of Real Investor Radio. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.